Hello and welcome to Sunflower Sutras. I am your host, Tara. Today we have planned an interview with Washburn's own Izzy Wasserstein. But first, a poem from John Keats, A Party of Lovers. Pensive they sit and roll their languid eyes, nibble their toast and cool their tea with sighs, or else forget the purpose of the night, forget their tea, forget their appetite. See, with crossed arms they sit, ah, happy crew. The fire is going out and no one rings for coals and therefore no coals Betty brings. A fly is in the milk pot, must he die by a humane society? No, no, there Mr. Werder takes his spoon, inserts it, dips the handle, and lo, soon, the little straggler, saved from perils dark, across the teaboard draws a long wet mark. Arise, take snuffers by the handle, there is a large cauliflower in each candle. A winding sheet, ah me, I must away, to number seven, just beyond the circus gay. Alas, my friend, your coat sits very well. Alas, may your tailor live, I may not tell. Oh, pardon me, I'm absent now and then. Where might my tailor live, I say again, I cannot tell. Let me no more be teased, he lives in Wapping might live where he pleased. And now it is my honor and privilege and much, much more to introduce to you, my listeners, Professor Izzy Wasserstein. Thank you so much, Tara, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Would you please do us the honors of introducing yourself? I'd be happy to. Um, So I was born right here where we are recording in Topeka, Kansas. I went to Washburn for my BA in English, uh, went off to grad school at the University of New Mexico, got my MFA in creative writing, and then came back here about a year after that, and I've been a faculty member in the English department uh, since then. I've been writing poetry uh, since I was an undergrad. I took uh, Amy Fleury's poetry class and was hooked and have been writing poetry ever since. So that's me. I have a vivid memory of most of the people I've brought on this show so far, uh, yourself included. I remember the first time I ever heard your poetry was actually the first night I ever performed my poetry publicly. It was at the uh, Topeka Public Library, and it was for the April Poetry Month, and you read selections of your superhero comic poems, which was uh, very entertaining, especially because Dennis Etzel also had poems of a a similar theme. And so it was almost a joint effort between the two. And I just remember thinking, I'd never, ever heard superhero poems before. I was so captivated. I remember thinking to myself, I need to keep an eye out for this person. And then I forgot. (laughs) And then, lo and behold, a few years later, I find out you are a professor of English at my own college. And I was thinking, well, now I'm too nervous because I'd most likely meet them 
as a student professor type thing. And I was worried I'd never get the chance to actually hear you as an artist again. But thankfully, I have found out that you have recently published a new book, When Creation Falls. Well, I'm so glad. I like to think of myself as a very non-intimidating person. <laughs> so I'd hate to think that anyone was keeping their distance because I happen to teach here. I love talking about poetry and writing in general, especially with you. I We had the pleasure of being on the same card at a poetry month reading this year, and I was just blown away by your work. It was great work, and you performed it brilliantly, so I am just absolutely delighted to be sitting here with you talking about poetry. Thank you so much. That's... Oh, now I'm bashful. <laughs> oh, me too. So we're going to be bashful together. <laughs> oh. See, here's the interesting thing. You are a very unique individual on Washburn campus. We don't exactly have a major poetry scene here in Topeka. We're not exactly known for our inclusivity. And you have a wonderful Venn diagram. Combine the two. At no point was that sort of my particular intention in life. But yeah, like I said, I, I've been a longtime lover of poetry. And it's been important for me to be part of making Topeka a more inclusive community and doing my small part to build the queer community here in town. For listeners who don't know me, I'm a trans woman. And so you're absolutely right. I do sit at the intersection of a fun Venn diagram. Although I do have to say that for the standard of a town its size, Topeka has, I would argue, a wildly successful poetry community. We have produced an amazing number of fantastic poets here in Topeka. If you ever have Professor Eric McHenry on your show, he can talk about this at length. Now, it's true that many of those great Topekan poets have moved away, but there appears to be something in the water in Topeka that produces fantastic poets, though I have no idea exactly what that thing is. <laughs> on that note, I am curious to know exactly how many years has poetry specifically been your medium of choice? That's a great question, and I think it's a fairly complicated answer. I have been taking poetry writing seriously, by which I mean doing something more than trying to write stuff that I would never show to any other human but myself and knew it, for close to 20 years now, which is really showing my age. But I think about my sophomore year as an undergraduate, I started really thinking about poetry as the tool that I wanted to use to engage with the world and help people see sort of my way of understanding it. That question is complicated on the other end as well because I also write quite a lot of fiction. So I no longer think of poetry as my sort of primary way of engaging with the world and being creative. I th sort of think of it as my co-primary way, if that makes any sense. But for at least 18 or 19 years, I'd say it's been a fundamental part of who I am and how I understand the world. So for you, poetry is an introspective journey. I think that's a big part of it. And I think it's also been for me, poetry is a space where I can interact with the world in a way that I feel comfortable with and that allows me to do the things that I feel that I'm good at and avoid the things that I'm not as good at. So for example, I've never been as, you know, quick on my feet as I'd like to be. 
But what I am pretty good at is sitting there and staring at the same four lines of a poem until they're the way I like them to be. Uh, so poetry suits my tastes very well in that respect. What is it, aside from that level of control, that makes poetry different from when you write a general fiction? For me, at least, the way I think of poetry is that poetry is that form of writing which pays the closest possible attention to matters of language. So when I think about poetry, I'm thinking about trying to use a particular kind of language to create, hopefully, a particular kind of effect in my readers. And it's complicated because that's not so different, I suppose, from what fiction writers do and what I do in my fiction writing. But I do think that even when I'm writing fiction, I'm writing it the way a poet does. That is, I'm attending to matters of language and image and character. And I'm only just very recently, I feel like, started to understand anything about how to plot. <laughs> and to this day, that's not my strong suit. So, like, I would say that even when I'm not writing poetry, I have the strengths and weaknesses of a poet about that content. Interesting. To borrow a term that I know is thrown a lot in the English department, there's a lot of ethos that I've noticed in your poetry. It doesn't exactly dwell that much as I've spoke with previous poets on the topic of trauma. Yours goes beyond that, but there's still, not to sound like a sap, but there's a lot of tear jerking. There's a lot of me getting choked up at times, and it's not necessarily always a sad reaction. It's just, it's just good writing coming through. Well, thank you. That's extremely kind of you. And I mean, as I'm sure you know, there's basically no praise that you can give a writer that's better than this moved me or I had a reaction to this. It's funny. I don't think of myself as a poet who engages a lot in personal trauma. I write a lot about issues that touch on politics and the state of American society and stuff like that. Which is not to say that I've never had any trauma in my life, but I think in many ways I've been a very fortunate person. And I'm also coming to find out that part of what is going on there is that there are things that I didn't realize were traumatic at the time because they were normal for me. I think I was in my well into adulthood before I realized that most people weren't actually constantly imagining worst-case scenarios for things that were happening, <laughs> and that what I was experiencing was fairly deep anxiety. And because I was in my own head so much, I didn't realize that not everyone was doing that. And so I guess what I'm saying here is that while I'm honored by that description of my work, it sometimes comes as a surprise to me because I'm trying to write an emotional truth, and I don't always realize what that might be revealing about me to other people, I suppose. Now, I would like to jump off on that point, because as you mentioned before, our reading at the Jayhawk, I remember you introducing your piece about the kitsune. Mm -hmm. And I remember your little anecdote with that poem about how at the time, you didn't realize that you were basically writing about being a trans woman. And now, in retrospect, hindsight is twenty twenty. the poem made more sense to you. Yeah, that was a poem about being trapped in one's body and understanding the world differently than you appeared on the outside. And because of the communities I was raised in and because of my own obliviousness, 
it wasn't until much later that I was like, oh, this is like an extremely trans poem. And once I realized that, I was like, well, of course it is. I don't have it with me, but that poem ends addressing the kitsune, the fox spirit. Tell me how a body falls away. Tell me all you found in its place. And I was dense enough not to know what I was writing about for a long time after that. But that's okay. I figured it out eventually. I was really comforted by hearing that because I too have written pieces where I'll read them a year or two later after writing them and realize, wow, these were really prophetic pieces and I had no clue. Just the fact that happened to other people made me wonder, well, how many other pieces have I read ended up being these life-changing or life-change-affirming pieces? I think it's little stories like that, which is why I absolutely love the open mic and scheduled readings that we have around town is because I get to hear the background stories of some of these poems. And it strengthens the feeling of connectivity. Yeah, I think that's an extremely important part for me of both the poetry community and the queer community is that both have this ethos that our stories are fundamentally valuable and worth telling and that the stories that we especially need are the stories of people who haven't previously been given the opportunity to tell those stories. And one of the, this is going to sound awful, I suppose, but I, I do believe that one of the powerful things about poetry is precisely because it doesn't have a real wide audience. We don't have to give in to any pressure to make our words more watered down or more generally acceptable. We can write and speak to exactly the communities that we want to. We're never going to have to worry that like, oh, this movie can't get produced, right? Because there's already no money in poetry. So <laughs> there is no market incentive to be any safer than you want to be. I find that comforting. I certainly I, do as well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a very anti-censorship kind of person. That does not necessarily mean anti-editing, but most certainly an anti-censorship kind of person. And I like that. That's a... Uh, glass is half full perspective. Well, thank you. I'm not often accused of being overly optimistic, but I'll take it. Um, <laughs> I think one of the most pernicious forms of censorship is self-censorship, right? And in fact, not to get too theoretical here, but systems of oppression often rely on people voluntarily not saying the thing that they were going to because they're afraid of the consequences, because you can't actually stop everyone from saying everything that they want to. So what you do instead is you try to create a system of control where people will voluntarily not say what they would. And so for me, the more I can encourage people to tell their own stories and to find their own voice, the better we all are for it. So would it be safe to assume that might be part of the reason why of most of the poets that I know in the Topeka scene, you probably have by far the more punk rock ethos of all of them? Uh, well, thank you. I, I certainly hope so. I think of myself as a punk rock kind of person. Your listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm wearing a punk rock t-shirt today. So yeah, that is really very much where I come from. And increasingly, I come from a place of believing that if my poetry is going to matter, it's going to matter because it has something to say about what's going on around us and has something to say about the world and my position within it, my observations about it. So 
Thank you very much. That's I'm deeply honored and touched by that. I think there is a lot more merit the more I think about the phrase, the personal is political. How do you take that phrase, especially in terms of art? I think it's absolutely true. I think there is no way to disconnect one's personal experience of the world from one's experience of politics. Um, and since politics is something like the ways that humans get together and organize their world, I think it's absolutely true that the personal is deeply political. And the more marginalized a person is, the more true that is, right? So I'm white. And the thing that I have noticed is that any of my discussions about race, no matter how explicit, are not seen by most people as radical or as upsetting as pretty neutral statements that people of color end up making. That is, black poets will be seen as talking about race no matter what they write about, right? So I don't think there's any ever any way to disconnect the personal from the political. On that note, is it more important to you that the statement come across and possibly change people's perspectives or is it more important to just have that personal catharsis out? As with many of these things, I think that it's not really a binary for me. I think the two things are related. One of the first things I decided as a poet, actually, even before I really understood what I'd be writing about or how I'd be approaching it, was that I wanted to write poems that people would read and take something from, and specifically that I wanted to write poems that people who were thoughtful and intelligent and liked to read but maybe didn't think of themselves as the kind of person who reads poetry could still read and enjoy. So for me, it's very important that I write poems that I think will be meaningful to an audience. And increasingly, more and more of late, I write poetry to try to give voice to my fears and fears that I see in my community and my hopes and the hopes that I see in my communities. What I find interesting about that is not just that statement, but this is also something that I found in reading your work. There's a lot of mirroring with similar sentiments of poet William Stafford, which if anyone is not familiar with his work, I highly recommend that you go out and seek it an adoptive Kansas treasure. But just like how his branches, a myriad of topics, he can make something like a random little field lizard staring off at a rock become this, this personal story, this adventure, this introspective piece as the same that he can do with talking about his mother passing away. And like I said, I find mirroring in your work there. You're expressing it at the same time you are, you're packaging it in a certain way. I wish I could explain it better. Perhaps if you have any insight. Well, you know, I'll give it a shot. I have been for many, many years a deep admirer of William Stafford's work. And your example is perfect, right? Because, you know, at least one poem of his that features a lizard, it's called At the Bomb Testing Site. And he explores through the point of view of a lizard what it's like to be at ground zero when the bomb goes off. So I deeply admire William Stafford and at times have taken issue with Stafford. For example, 
And I say this as someone who believes that we have an obligation to critique and engage with the things that we love, especially where we take issue with them. And so he has a review of this amazing poetry anthology called Against Forgetting, 20th Century Poems of Witness. The amazing poet Carolyn Fourche edited that collection. And it's all poems from poets who witnessed firsthand oppression and brutality. And it's an amazing collection. And Stafford has a review of it. He wrote very late in his life a review of this collection. And he took issue with it because it was talked about that we need to not forget this. We need to understand, as Americans, our complicity in it. And Stafford, who was a lifelong pacifist, said, who is we? Which is a fair point. But also, I think at some level it was a contrarian point. We know who we are. We know that whether we like it or not, our lives are shaped and the privileges that we have have been made possible in part because a lot of people have done a lot of awful things. So Stafford is really a touchdown for me because he has influenced my work as much as probably any other author. And I want to acknowledge and praise that. But I also want to push back at the limits of that. And I want to think carefully and deeply about where he and I disagree as well as where we agree. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's sort of where I'm coming from. Having influence is one thing, but you have to take your own shape, especially when you abandon the ideas of like a hero worship kind of sense. It makes perfect sense to me. Thank you. And yes, one thing I have become absolutely convinced of is that we absolutely must stop with the hero worship. Um, it is wonderful to admire people's work. It's wonderful to admire their personal work, as I admire the incredible personal cost that Stafford paid as a conscientious objector during World War II. I admire that deeply. He lived his values at great personal cost. But if we make people into heroes, then when their inevitable human mistakes come to light, we risk damaging ourselves. And so I want people to admire and I want people to promote the voices that matter to them. But I do think you're absolutely right. We need to understand that no one is above criticism and that we're all human and we all have our mistakes and our things that we can't see clearly. Not to distract from our point, but I would like to know if you have any projects of which you are currently working on or that you would like to discuss with our listeners. I'd be delighted to. This has already been promoted on this show once when Rhonda Miller was here, but on July 21st, 4 to 6 p.m. in Pittsburgh, Kansas at the Eclectic Soul Studio, three Meadowlark Books poets, myself, Olive Sullivan, and Rhonda Miller will be reading from our work. I expect that to be an amazing afternoon. I've never read with Olive Sullivan before, but I have with Rhonda, and she's amazing. And so anyone in that neck of the woods, I hope, will come out and join us for that. Other projects? I have given myself permission not to think about how to start the next poetry collection. But in addition to When Creation Falls, which is now out, and if any of your listeners want to pick up a copy, I'd be delighted to sign it for them. I have fiction out recently in Clark's World magazine, fiction about places that never were or that might once have been and places that might begin. And especially for your listeners who like my more political poetry, they'll find a lot to like there as well. Okay, we just finished a Kickstarter for a anthology 
called Maiden, Mother, and Crone uh, that I will be a part of. All fantastic speculative fiction by trans female and trans feminine writers. So I'm really excited for that. You should see that coming out. I think we're aiming for early next year. Um, and I also have a short story about different versions of Topeka and what it means when we say you can't go home again that will be forthcoming from uh, Fireside Magazine. I'm excited to read that. Thank you. And before we bid you a wonderful farewell from our show, if you could do us the honors of reading some selected poetry. I'd be delighted to. Let me start with a poem that responds directly to William Stafford since we've been talking about that. So William Stafford has this amazing poem called Report to Crazy Horse. It's a persona poem written in the voice of a Native American who is writing to Crazy Horse and uh, asks the question, tell me if I am right. And in true Stafford fashion, it's daring and risky and some of his most fascinating poetry, maybe even a little problematic. And this is my response to Report to Crazy Horse, titled, Report to William Stafford. You lived long and carefully. You knew the prairie wind, how it can call all through long January nights, how sometimes settlers would listen and step from their houses, thin topsoil crunching under boots or rising to meet bare toes. And in the morning, there would be no trace of their passing. The storm does this. I have listened to the wind's song, and I think I will not live so long. It does not concern me. But this, I matured in a decade of madness, assaults on an enemy we were told was hiding in desert rat holes or mountain caves, where people hold centuries-old ways and older grudges. The ones who say this think we are different. I do not know who they mean by we. They fight a concept, a tick growing fat on assassinations, uranium shells, drone strikes. This is a convenient way of killing, as impersonal as any strip mall. No one can tell me if they believe we will win, if they think fighting makes them strong. You have been gone twenty years now, more than twenty. They award peace prizes to men who have done nothing and worse than nothing. The wind does not care about Mr. Nobel. It does not care about you, Bill, or me. It is the wind. I do not know if monsters can be overcome, if the new great extinction can be halted or slowed. I dream of that gleaming face at times. Will you tell me what this means? Yesterday at dusk, a cold front came battering against my door, sweeping from the west, striking bare branches against windows stirring the dog as he watched the fire burn low. A shriek. I rushed in terror to the window. Two children chased each other in circles, laughing. I'll read one more if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. That's perfectly fine. Thank you. 
This poem begins with an epigraph from a newspaper editorial, quote, Artists who use their media of choice to advocate specific political agendas should always warrant our suspicion. This is Confessions of a Political Poet. I will confess I have little patience for pastorals, for experiments, for postmodern explorations, for poetry written in circles to subvert patriarchy, for lyrics that earnestly explore how communication is impossible. I confess such things seem a luxury, and so I embrace unpoeticism and admit that I sometimes think about those bankers who looted millions from pensions, profiting on the misery of the soon-to-be homeless, fantasize about lining those bastards and putting two bullets in their heads. I am not a violent person. I would rather write about occult patterns which the rain creates, mixing with oil and garbage on city streets. How can I write of the squirrels in my backyard who antagonize my dog while Colorado burns, crops wither, ice caps melt? These are ugly sentiments for a poet. I can't write small poems about autumn with Trayvon Martin dead and Eric Gardner choking on camera with fuck your breath, with Freddie Gray's spine snapped, with Rika Boyd's head torn open. The list outstretches all my poetry. I can't write about subverting the paradigm of I while the people of Syria are murdered, while politicians label anyone killed by drones enemy combatants, while polio and TB return, while women die in back-alley abortions and churches preach, stay with your abuser, while football coaches, archbishops, politicians cover for rapists, while the children of the powerful become the powerful, while wealth piles in the hands of the rich and the poor go without jobs, without health care, without hope. I confess, if I knew how, I would rather be a poet of revolution to bend my words against injustice. I confess, I am not that poet, too middle class, too white, too soft-spoken. In my defense, I can say only this, I reject the sin of silence. Don't you just love that voice? <clears throat> I love the way you read. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for reading those wonderful poems. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you for having me. And now for our listener submission from local poet Adam White, we have a couple of poems. This first piece is titled The Mermaid. She swims through troubled waters, oceans, streams, rivers, lakes, and ponds. A loud, large splash announces her movement, similar to a bell tolling. Can you hear her melody? A sharp siren song sweetly seducing sailors. I hear it. I want to be a sailor. I start to believe. I am the only sailor. I am the only man she's singing to. 
I find myself knee-deep in choppy waters. She's gone. No more singing, no more seducing, only shame and sadness. Self-loathing and internal disgust leave me wrestling with demons. I think I hear another splash, but it's only the mermaid's laugh. Rochester Symmetry A drizzling gray sky falls upon hills of legacies and achievements. The symmetry hosts hundreds of graves. The aged tombstones stand tall, chipped and chiseled by bitter winds. Old, old trees droop and sag with the weight of finality. I walk among them, alert and full of vitality, full of life. A solitary teddy bear's eyes meet mine. The hell you doing here? We think of each other. My eyes are locked. I realize it, for it is. It is a lonely beacon, a lost gesture, a surreal guardian of tears. It's absurdity engaging my soul. I watch it watching all those now made equal. Perhaps it will watch me someday. One day. Vultures are like Christmas. They hatch from eggs like a jack-in-the-box. They circle in the sky like a toy train around a Christmas tree. They flock to a carcass like shoppers on Black Friday. They strip flesh from bone like kids stripping wrapping paper from presents. They soar like reindeer. They dive like a falling snowflake. Wings as black as the night before Christmas. Talons as curved as candy canes. Blood stains their beaks as dark as cranberry sauce instilling as much fear as Christmas instills joy. Thank you very much for sharing your words with us, Adam. I appreciate that. And for our listeners out there, it has come to that time again. My call for submissions. Remember, I want it all. Give me your weird stuff. Give me your mundane stuff. I don't care. I won't judge. Give me poetry of any shape, size, smell, you name it. You know, at this point, I don't even necessarily want them to just be words. You could send me theoretical poetry. I won't be able to share it on the show, obviously, but I would appreciate it. Thank you all for listening. Salon Gafol. Treat each other well.